You are listening to the Sustainable Transitions podcast, a podcast series where we explore our transition to a low-carbon society, the communities that lead the way and the people who support them. I am your host, Daphne Lindbecker. Today's guest is David Lanholm, a PhD student at Humboldt University and a researcher at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. His work focuses on understanding local, regional and global causes of deforestation. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, let's just dive right in. What first drew you to studying deforestation? I've been quite related to the natural environment topic since quite a few years. So um, I studied uh, forest engineering at the Technic University in Madrid as my degree, and this focused mostly on management of natural forests, but also on other type of ecosystems. Uh, since I remember, I've always had a big interest in wanting to contribute somehow to improve our natural environment. And um, at some point, I think there was a transition from being interested in local management of forest type of topics. In this big context of climate change, I became more interested in the bigger picture, and especially when I became aware of how deforestation is closely tied to climate change. And so what were the main goals of your research? In a nutshell, I'm trying to study the underlying causes at different spatial scales. At a local scale, understanding what local actors, what motivates them to cause deforestation, but also at a national and a global level. Every day now, the causes are get to be more and more global. Do you have a favorite scale to study? I think I prefer to study at the global scale. Why? It, it, it tends to be more data-driven, straightforward type of analysis. Mm-hmm. The very local case studies, although they're very interesting and you need them to, in the end, bring about like real solutions. But in my experience, at least, the acquisition process is very tedious. And there are always many more details that maybe you don't have the expertise to deal with, especially when you're working in these two different scales. How do you typically conduct your analysis? I wouldn't say there's a typical way to do it. I would say that it varies completely. The only thing that is sort of the same always is that you ask yourself an interesting research question that you want to address. And then you sort of try to figure out what tools and methods and data sets you can use. And this always leads to something completely different. So all the papers I've done until now have always had a very different approach. Interesting. And so, in terms of data sets, what kind of data do you use? Are there similarities between your data on the different scales? Are they completely different? It varies quite a bit. So, at a local scale, for example, I'm working now on the data that's been retrieved through household surveys. Okay. So, it's a huge number of people have to go to roughly 300 farms to do questionnaires that last for hours. So, that, that's one type of data that we're using. At a national and global level, it's a bit easier because you just work from your computer and you're downloading like satellite-based imagery or data sets that have been already produced by other researchers and try to elaborate them further. It sounds like you need very different skills to analyze the different data sets. I mean, you have like 300 farms, you have very rich data. It's more quantitative or qualitative, would you say? For the local case, it was a mixture of both. I guess it depends on what you're trying to assess. In our case, the project was a bit of a mixture of trying to reduce emissions in these farms, trying to reduce deforestation, so that I had a very quantitative questions in the survey. But on the other hand, there were a lot of sort of the social scientists and economists trying to figure out whether these more sustainable land use options that we were promoting, whether they also have a social impact improving the local livelihoods. So I'd say it was half and half in this case. It just depends completely. And why do you think understanding deforestation is important when it comes to climate change? Agriculture, forestry and other land use sector, which is called AFOLU, it accounts for 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And deforestation is roughly half of this. 
So it's almost 15% of global emissions are coming from deforestation. So trying to slow down tree cover loss rates is really crucial to achieving climate commitments. So did you say 50%? 15. The, the, all the sector, agriculture and forestry, account for a quarter of the total. Okay. So one eighth, one half of this is due to deforestation. That is quite a bit, isn't it? Yeah, it is definitely. So you examine what subsistence and smallholder livestock farms in Colombia can do to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. What did you find to be the best at reducing greenhouse gas emissions? This research it took part in a project called SUSA and basically it was understanding the areas that were being mostly deforested. And in the case of this region we were evaluating, it was smallholder livestock farms. So small-scale livestock farms were clearing most of the primary forest to establish their operations there. And the idea of the project was to give them land use based solutions so that it could improve their livelihoods, so improve the efficiency of the farms they were working on, and at the same time allow them not to have to continue clearing the forest. And in this context, we evaluated silvopastoral systems, which is a type of system that includes higher quality pastures, so better quality and more efficient uh, grasses, and at the same time it considered a tree row planting. And the combination of these two elements, better grasses and higher dense trees within the livestock grazing area, it has the overall impact of reducing greenhouse gas emissions because a lot of the emissions are stored in the form of carbon in the biomass of the trees and in the biomass of the soil. How do you get denser grass? It's not only denser, yeah, no, it, it is denser grass actually. So it's just land use that's being used at the moment there. So livestock farming is not an adequate land use for that region. So the soil quality is very poor and in general that wouldn't be the type of activity that you would want there. But, but that's the case. So by searching around the world for other types of pastures that have higher quality, so they're easier to digest by the animals and reduce the emissions per animal, but also just they produce more quantity in time in the same space. It's just a matter of what species is better adapted to that soil and to that climate. So if you're a local farmer, you just use what everybody else is using around you, but now that the world is more interconnected, a research can facilitate and provide better adapted pastures for that place. So just to make sure I understand, so it's just different types of animals for the farmers there? Or? It's improved pastures, so it's, it's the grass. Okay. So it's improving the grass and including different types of trees. Okay. And so these are typical, like, right against single-family farms, that kind of stuff, or are they larger, more like commercial farms, or are they mixed? In this area, they're all smallholder, that's what it basically means. It's okay. local, and it's normally one big family, and the, the sons are sort of carrying on the work of their parents, and it's, but yeah, it's very, very local. And then they normally don't have access to capital or other means. So farming intensification is a common suggestion, if I understand it, for reducing deforestation. However, you suggest that farming intensification, so as to prevent the need for farms to expand into forested areas, is unlikely to work in Colombia. Can you explain why? I wouldn't say it's unlikely to work per se, but it needs to have adequate policies complementing it. So if you disregard completely policy, and just want to implement a more intensified type of agriculture, there isn't really too much evidence that points that this will just solve the problem and reduce deforestation. Policies need to address the underlying drivers, and these vary across regions. In this particular case, the driver is quite surprising. Its smallholders are clearing forests to claim informal tenure, and they're hoping that in the future they'll receive formal titles. So that the reason to clear the forest is more to they're expecting a future value of the land insurance policy sort of, but it's not related to price of milk or price of beef. The best way to claim a piece of land is to clear the trees and introduce your cattle. So 
Yes, agriculture needs to be intensified. That's part of the problem, and a big amount of emissions can be reduced through these systems, through using trees within agriculture, and in this case, in livestock farms. But at the same time, there has to be policies that address these other underlying reasons. Oh, yeah, I understand why you say that, because I mean, if you think if you just clear land in the future, you're going to get to own that land, I mean, why wouldn't you do that? I... This might be a little bit strange for us in our context, but and particularly in Colombia. Colombia just went through an armed conflict, so the governance in many areas of the country is completely chaotic or not controlled by the government. And in, in this type of context, farmers, they don't, of course, they, they're just caring about themselves. They want to survive and they're not dis they're disregarding environmental concerns. And they're hoping that in the future, whoever comes in will grant them their, their land. Hmm. That seems very rational, I have <laughs> to say. I mean... Oh, I see why you think policy needs to be tremendous to fix that kind of an issue, yeah. So, uh, speaking of armed conflict, you also examined the armed conflict in Colombia and how it affected deforestation in the area. So, in general, what is the relationship between armed conflict and deforestation? And the answer doesn't seem very intuitive. Although, in some cases, we can see a direct effect of combat on tree cover. For example, if you think of Vietnam War, there are like really big-scale bombing campaigns. That's not normally not the, the way it would be related. Armed conflict affects forests by affecting these underlying deforestation causes. So, for example, in Colombia, illicit crop production, like for coca crop production, and livestock production, mining, and illegal timber. These are considered the four main drivers, main causes of deforestation in Colombia. And the conflict displaced over 7 million people, which is a huge amount of citizens. And by doing so, affected crucially whether these deforestation causes increased or decreased in certain regions. So in some regions that are controlled by rebel groups, for example, they would try to intensify mining or intensify the illicit crop production to finance their struggle. In other areas, which may be where had a strategic importance for the rebel groups, they would want to have a big forest cover and they would discourage deforestation by the local population. These dynamics known by researchers qualitatively and we wanted to add a quantitative vision. So we tried to assess this relationship between different degrees of conflict intensity and whether forests would increase or decrease. So in your article, Diverging Forest Land Use Dynamics Induced by Armed Conflict Across the Tropics, you say that armed conflict has the potential to be both positive and negative for the environment in terms of deforestation and reforestation. How did that work? It's a regional mechanism. And in some cases, the forest cover might be important for the rebel group. They would actually encourage its local citizens there not to deforest because it was a strategic corridor. So this is how it works in uh, these two different ways. In general, is our conflict good or bad for the Overall, although we did see in some municipalities that there was a positive effect, Overall, at a country scale, we can say without a doubt that the conflict had a negative effect on the forest. So we can say happily that peace also has the benefits for forests, not only for everybody in the country. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so if I understood correctly, your analysis also said that the conflict in Colombia was worse than the armed conflict you analyzed in the tropic. Why would that be? We extended our analysis of Colombia to all the tropics and we included another 60 different countries. And basically we have data on where the conflict location is. And since we have a lot of the satellite information on what occurs in that place in the future, we can see which one of those conflict points was deforested. So we're basically, we're seeing, okay, how many of these conflict points have been deforested? 
and then we compare it to a benchmark, which is normally the average deforestation that's taking place at a country scale. And we saw that for the global tropics, these conflict points were four times more likely to undergo deforestation than normal average rates. And this provides a benchmark to see individual countries. And in the case of Colombia, this was eight times higher. So we can say that a plumbing conflict was roughly twice as bad for forests in relation to the average in the tropics. Do you know why that would be, or is that beyond the scope of the paper? We can hypothesize, which it's probably just due to the higher intensity and duration of the conflict. As I said before, the plumbing conflict displaced over 7 million people. So that's like a record together with Syria. So it would be expected that this effect would be stronger for these countries. So the longer the conflict and the more intense, the more deforestation basically generally. So when I think about deforestation I usually think of market pressures. So in your article cross-country analysis of commodity driven tropical deforestation you dive into that topic. So what then is the relationship between the international markets and deforestation? This is quite an interesting topic. So over the previous decades of the 90s, smallholder deforestation, so this small scale deforestation that we were talking about earlier, this was considered globally more important. But over the years, it's changing to the point where today it's actually driven more by markets and by big commercial agriculture. Then, so smallholder deforestation is still important in some regions, especially in Africa. But due to openness of trade, more and more countries countries are interlinked to the global system and therefore changes in price of specific commodities, so like if the price of gold or the price of beef or the price of coffee go up and down, this has effects across all the tropics and can increase or decrease deforestation. In this work, even though we've seen there's quite a lot of research for individual countries to study this relationship, there wasn't sort of a comprehensive global scale study which tried to address this comprehensively. So we wanted to study 40 different countries and we included over 20 commodity products across mining, timber, agriculture sector. And essentially we want to know which commodity crop is producing deforestation where, on the one hand, and on the other hand also, in general, which countries are more linked to markets. In your article you mentioned that different regions are affected by the prices of different commodities, but Asia is the most strongly influenced by commodity prices. Why is that? Well, that is an interesting question. We saw that here it's mostly a hypothesis, which would be that the countries in Asia are just more open to trade relatively in relation to other regions. Within Latin America, we see countries that are very open to trade and we see a big variation. For example, for the case of Colombia, which we were talking about before, Colombia was one of the countries that was least linked to international markets. And we can probably have a sense of why that is. They went through many decades of armed conflicts, so it is understandable that they wouldn't be so affected by pressures from abroad. But the dynamics would be, in this case, determined by the conflict. And in Africa, we also see a mixture. So some countries are increasingly linked to international markets, especially the ones that are producing only one or two commodities. But for Asia, we saw that it was consistently high. It was a surprising result for us. In your article, you also use the example of cocoa-driven deforestation in the Ivory Coast. And you say that deforestation is linked to low cocoa prices. That's sort of counterintuitive. So why would that happen? This was also it seemed counterintuitive at the beginning, but we saw this. The first conclusion is that it's very complex and we see different relationships. This one in particular, we saw for many countries that depend only on one or two commodities. So Ivory Coast, 50% of their exports are a cocoa. So the, the economy of the entire country is determined to a great extent by whether the price is high or low. 
And if we think of what effect a low price can have for a country that is so affected by this, it means that their revenue will go down substantially. Also, if you look at that at a local scale, you can also understand that if a farmer suddenly is given a much lower price for his commodity, one reaction to this would be to try to expand the area of his farm. And this also happens at a country level, so they're trying to reduce the economic loss. When the price goes down, you try to export more to make up for the difference. That's so interesting because intuitively I would think, well, if we're making so much money off it, we'll hire more people and take down more forests, but it's the opposite issue. This was the pattern that we saw for these countries that are very strongly influenced by one or two commodities. But the more intuitive one we also found. So in other countries, and this normally would be countries that are more affected by commercial, larger scale deforestation, this is the more intuitive relationship. If coffee price goes up because there's a huge demand for it, then large companies who are investing a lot of money, of course they're interested expanding their area. So which is worse for deforestation, um, conflict or market pressure? That's quite a tricky one because but it also highlights the fact that many of the studies are always trying to address a certain type of deforestation drivers and not others. This is something that I've seen even in my papers and which motivates me to want to include a more larger number of variables. But in general, I'd say if you look at individual countries, if it's a conflict country, then of course the conflict has more impact, but at a global scale, the effect of markets is much higher today. Which one do you think would be easier to solve? Uh, this <laughs> is also extremely tricky, but uh, both need to be solved. Okay. Both need to be solved to reduce emissions to achieve our climate targets. Given all this, where do you see the future of this type of research going? Personally, I would I'd say that on the one hand, what I just said, that I, I think studies should include a larger number of variables, not just focus on a very few. And also given the amount of methods, uh, new methods that are coming up uh, related to machine learning, for example, it's possible now to include more variables. We also have a larger number of higher quality data sets. So from a, like a data-driven research perspective, it's a very exciting time to analyze this problem. On the other hand, I would say that we have to address more the solutions part of the problem. And this is also something that I would like to do. I've focused until now on understanding more the causes, but a, a lot more effort has to go into the solutions. And the solutions will be partly through the supply side, and that's the example of the first paper. So how farmers can, can do things differently to reduce deforestation while improving their livelihoods. But it also has to come from some demand side policies. And this is more related to the last paper, to the one of market prices. So a combination of these supply and demand side measures would be ideal. And uh, this would be something that I would wish to dive into deeper. So thank you very much, David, for the interesting discussion. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. So David's articles are currently under review. And so I will not have any links to them in the show notes immediately, but hopefully, once your papers are accepted, I can put a link on the website if that's okay with you, David. Definitely, that's awesome. So thank you for listening, and if you would like more information on the content of this podcast or sustainability transitions in general, visit the Sustainability Transitions blog at sustainabletransitionsblog.com. And I have exciting news, the Sustainable Transitions podcast is now available on CastBox for easy listening on your smartphone.